This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. These are ideas that aren't touched upon in headline culture and most media outlets. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased, but we do need your support. So leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. In today's conversation, we speak with Dr. Nicholas Norwitz, who obtained his PhD at Oxford University and is now pursuing his medical doctorate at Harvard Medical School. His research expertise is ketosis and brain aging. However, he has published scientific papers on topics ranging from neuroscience to heart disease to gastrointestinal health to genetics to bone health to diabetes. Nick's passion for food as medicine is founded in a personal history. Today, he shares this story with us and how he discovered this passion. Nick also explains what metabolic health is. He also explains what ketosis is and how it's more of a state and less of a diet. He also remains open that keto isn't a solution for everyone all the time, but explains how it can be beneficial for some folks. He also talks about the importance of protein. He explains what insulin has to do with not only diabetes, but metabolic health in general. We also chat about how artificial sweeteners affect health. This was a wonderful conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. Now, on to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. We're super excited to chat with you. I would really like to just start off with your story and a little bit about you and how you got really involved and interested in metabolic health. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for so much for having me on, Amanda and Daniel. It's, it's, uh, like you said, we were talking a little bit, and I can tell uh, I'm speaking to like minds. Um, so excited for this conversation. But yeah, uh, metabolic health. Well, first, maybe I should just define metabolic health. I'm not sure that's a, a term that's intuitively obvious, but um, as I define it, metabolic health and metabolic medicine is an approach to healthcare where you look at the root causes of disease, the fundamental like metabolic underpinnings, in inflammation, insulin resistance that underpin, underpin a bunch of different diseases and um, with often a focus on nutrition. Um, now, nutrition and metabolic health weren't really even things that were on my radar as fields of medicine, I was very conventionally minded. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor, like since I was, I don't know, since I can remember prior to that when maybe when I was like eight, wanted to be a marine biologist, but other than that, doctor. Um, and I was kind of always aware of nutrition, like I was mindful of what I ate, I ate to the food pyramid or my plate, I guess. Um, and, and thought that's what healthy was, you know, when you, when you tell people you're into nutrition, or into nutrition, that's the thing that pops to their mind, USDA, my plate, eat a balanced diet, your fruits and vegetables. And so that's what I thought healthy was. I thought that was just healthy for everybody. And I kind of followed that pattern of eating, um, for most of my life and didn't have much trouble with any health problems really, other than like a stuffy nose on occasion until I was around 18. And then I started to develop a bunch of weird pathologies. Uh, and I won't go too down the rabbit hole with that, but they were curious, especially in me as a, a young 18 year old, otherwise healthy guy at the time I developed, um, actually osteoporosis of all things, which is thought of as like an older woman's disease, um, then started developing severe, severe gut pains, um, and ended up developing ulcerative colitis when I was uh, around 2021. 20, uh, 
both of those things were really tough for me. The osteoporosis, because I was an athlete, I was a runner and, um, you know, losing my sport was kind of devastating at that age, but the colitis was by far worse. I, I don't know if you know anybody that suffers with Crohn's or colitis, but it's one of those invisible diseases that, um, it really just tarnishes your quality of life. It's not the physical pain like that. I can deal with pretty high tolerance for pain, but the unpredictability of it and the degree to which it just completely consumes your social life and ability to gauge in extracurriculars, academics. I mean, at this point I'm in college and it's like, I'm not worried about taking an exam in terms of the content. I'm worried about like, what if I have a flare and I have to run out, like literally, you know, well, bleeding out my rear, so to speak, or, you know, going out, going on dates, going even on a car ride, it can be just really anxiety provoking and traumatic. And so those are kind of the thoughts that filled my everyday. And that's kind of what life became. So it was kind of unpleasant, but I put on a good show um, until I graduated. And um, I deferred med school for a bit um, to go do a PhD over in the UK. Uh, and as soon as I, I arrived um, at Oxford, which I was doing my PhD, within a few weeks, I got the sickest I've ever been to the point that my flare would not stop. No matter what I did, I dropped about 15, 20% of my body weight in a few weeks. And they ended up putting me um, as an inpatient, actually in a, in a palliative care ward of all places. I don't necessarily think I was dying, but that's where they placed me, um, which was kind of scary. As you can imagine, young kid moved to a new country, put in a room of people that are either demented or it's the first time I actually witnessed death around me. Um, at the time, my heart rate was the reason they, they admitted me there was in the 20s without known cause. So it, it, it was kind of scary. I was getting worked up by uh, multiple cardio teams in severe pain for my stomach, but they weren't addressing that because they were focused on my heart. Ended up again, getting discharged really without any answer. Um, so by this point, I was someone with osteoporosis, which was very odd. I was someone with ulcerative colitis, which was maybe not that atypical, but really destroying my life. And now I was finding myself like having weird episodes of bradycardia without cause. And um, I was, I was kind of at a loss because I was, you know, on the surface of things, like all the opportunity was at my fingertips. At this point, I'm doing a PhD in Oxford, technically. I, you know, had a place at med school here at now where I am at Harvard. And it's like, you know, my future could be great, but I literally feel like I'm about to die. Like life is not worth living. And I can't even do anything. I can't get up to walk to lab. Like two years prior, I was running sub three marathons. And now it takes an enormous amount of effort to roll out of bed and walk to lab. And that I consider more than enough exercise. It's exhausting. So I'm like, how do I get here? And what do I do about it? At that point, I was um, like, he, you want to believe in as a patient that doctors are omniscient, that they know everything. And they're like, yep, here's the medication for you. And we're going to fix you. And it almost seems arrogant to assume that there's any other possibility like that. I could fix me. I was afraid to consider that. Like I could do anything about this since the top experts in the world apparently had not been able to solve my problems. And I was a pretty compliant patient. Um, so it wasn't out of any expectation what I did next, but out of complete desperation um, that I just started experimenting with everything under the sun. Again, just like total desperation. My options basically were live insufferably. Maybe I just die, which at that point didn't seem that bad. I wasn't suicidal, but like really life was just um, felt like possible or just try things because why the hell not? 
And so then I started trying everything, different meditation patterns, different exercises, different supplements, and really started experimenting with uh, diet. And so I tried every diet you've probably ever heard of at some point in my life. I've done gluten-free and casein-free, FODMAP, uh, specific carbohydrate, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, Mediterranean, like anything, pretty much, although there's always a new one. Um, I, I feel like I tried. And on the bottom of my list for things to try, genuinely at the bottom was a ketogenic diet. Because that time, at that time, I like my impression of keto was what you mostly hear in the media or from nutritionists when you Google it, which are not necessarily favorable things. Nevertheless, again, desperate, no expectation. I tried it. And for me, it, it really was a moment I will, I will never forget or a week at least because my symptoms had went away within a week. Like they were the best that ever been. My energy came back. Um, and even when we checked my inflammatory markers, they had dropped like eightfold to their lowest level ever. It was crazy. And over the next six months it was the longest period. I didn't have a flare. I came off my medications and the only times I've ever had a flare since three occasions, one, I got mycotoxin poisoning and the two other occasions when I, where I tried to come off a ketogenic diet. Both times I'll get stomach pains and end up with blood in my stool and my inflammation comes up. So, you know, for me, I found that this very much worked, but when it worked for me, I still thought it was like an oddball. I'm a zebra, not a horse kind of thing. And then I started to dig into the literature and get involved with the community of people that have been doing low carb and, and ketogenic diets. And I'll wrap up because I realize I've been going on, but, um, now what I say, this is probably the thing, this could be my catchphrase, I say it so much, is the most remarkable thing about my story is that it's not at all unique. That I see this motif all around me of people struggling with a metabolic health condition, be it an inflammatory bowel disease, diabetes, obesity, what have you. They don't feel like they're fully being helped by conventional medicine. Not that they're being mistreated, but that they, they could have more. And then they experiment with things. And then they find that um, focusing on metabolic health and specifically, uh, therapeutic carbohydrate reduction, sometimes ketosis is phenomenally powerful and brings them hope and a quality of life that they never thought they could have again. I, I have a quality of life back right now, that I never, ever thought I'd have again. And that's something that I, I, a feeling I want to give to other people who I see struggling with, um, you know, things that I think could benefit from metabolic health approach, including all the major metabolic diseases that are kind of crippling our healthcare system and that are going to constitute the majority of our patients in the future, all three of us. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll put a pin in it there because it's been going on and, uh, and let you speak. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's a really fascinating story. And I'm glad that you feel so much better. I'm really, really happy that you like found something that works for you. Mm -hmm. And even if someone isn't like in a palliative care unit, I think that like a change in diet, if they've like been living with even like low grade mm -hmm. symptoms their whole life, they could really benefit from even changing their diet a little bit, even if they're not like, oh my gosh, I have to do something in desperation because a lot of people yeah. don't even know they're living in that state. Exactly. A lot of it's subclinical and the best medicine is preventative. I mean, it took me getting to that point to even consider really honing in on nutrition as number one, 
again, through desperation, like why isn't that first line therapy? The question that comes into my mind is, is not like, why is it? I, I don't think, to be clear, I don't think everybody needs to do a ketogenic diet. I don't think it's the best for every person. But the fact that I went through years of suffering and it was never even posed as an option, nor was a real metabolic health approach, I find that a little bit disturbing. So during your journey, were there ever any moments of hope, you know, with medical, like normal conventional treatment where you were like, Hey, this might be working. Uh, Were there any moments like that? Or was it pretty much nothing was nothing was working for you? Yeah. I mean, I think any medical journey is, is punctuated by moments of hope, even if it's not due to a drug that's working per se, but even just like a good doctor, I, I want to be clear. I had a lot of really fantastic doctors who made me feel cared for. Uh, and that was a big part of my journey, a big part of what kept hope, hope alive for, for those years. When you walk in and you feel somebody's on your team, whether or not you walk out feeling like there is a solution, but always just having people on my side who were willing to order tests that I was interested in if I had an idea uh, express care or concern or work with me towards the next solution, because there's always something to try. Um, and so a few docs give me phenomenal opportunities, like for the osteoporosis, one of my doctors actually hooked me up with a, a research interested in, internship to study, you know, osteology in one of the labs at MGH, which was, you know, a, an awesome opportunity to get insight into my own disease. So she was, you know, looking out for me even beyond the, uh, the clinic. And so I, I really do appreciate all the doctors I've had, I don't feel like I've been per se mismanaged by any individuals. And therefore I'm not bitter about my personal care, but it's despite that, um, that, you know, I feel like there's more systemic problems. And do I feel like I, I, you know, there were medications that helped per se, um, maybe some that alleviated symptoms, but nothing that really persistently helped. So I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's probably quite typical of, you know, the way we treat patients now, like you can give a drug, to ameliorate or ameliorate pain or bandage a symptom, but are you really treating the underlying disease or is it just going to chronically progress? At, at least as I, I don't know if you guys are on, on Twitter, or obviously you're on social media all over, but um, you know, I, I, I see a lot of frustration and quite honestly, doctor bashing through people who have had similar experiences like me. It's like, why didn't the doctor help me? And, and, and kind of nasty things about doctors and that everybody I've met, is working their asses off to do the best by their patients. And it's, it's, it's a problem with the system. And more importantly, uh, on that point is that everybody I've met that I've brought my story to, and I brought literature to on metabolic health, who is either a medical student or a practicing physician um, who could very rightly, you know, um, cast me aside for being just like, you know, a, a new med student are generally very open and interested in wanting to learn including my professors now at, at HMS, they really want to hear what I have to say and learn. And so I think that that means that there's a lot of opportunity for change because I think if the message is delivered correctly, we all have the same goal, which is helping each other and helping patients and advancing things. And so if something is working and we can share it with each other, everybody wants in on that. I'm optimistic. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's plenty to be optimistic about for all yeah. of us. Um, I, one more question too, just in regards to your health journey. So you talked about alleviating some of the negative symptoms, some of the bad ones, blood in the stool, inflammation, things like that. Yeah. Was there anything that any, anything positive that came out of it too? You, you had mentioned briefly your energy, but is there anything else that, that you want to talk about in terms of just 
feeling better? Oh, above baseline. I mean, yeah. so many things. I, I I'll talk more generally about pe- other people's experiences now that I have some um, uh, like time in this space. I've been working as a, a metabolic health practitioner, kind of on the side, kind of like a coaching thing. And what I find is that when people adopt metabolic health approaches, they almost always go for it for reason A, and they get the benefits of reason A, but they also come away and stay with it for different reasons. So in terms of a ketogenic diet, the number one thing I hear is I went on it for weight loss, which is the most common um, reason people go on it, or for a reversal of diabetes. Um, And then they say, but like, I stayed because of the incredible like, like the way my brain felt. And it is kind of weird. Um, depending on what your different pathologies and symptomologies are, the degree to which, you know, a, a certain metabolic state correlates to a way of feeling to the point that, at least for me, it's my stomach, it's really eerie. I can tell you what my ketones are running within 0.2 millimoles based on how my stomach is feeling. If I'm having like a bad stomach morning, maybe I ate something, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm like at like a 0.9. I'll be with between 0.7 and 1.1, or I'm like feeling really good. I feel like a a 1.8. So it's freaky. Uh, And you kind of get that sense after doing some like bio tracking for a while, but everybody has a different thing. I do find that my brain works. um, Like you you can get in that Zen mode um, with ketosis, which is kind of cool because you're just, your brain's running on uh, on a different wire. And then one other thing that really surprised me was the way my tastes changed when I stopped having sweets and sugar. Because I used to be like a sugaraholic person, like get back from a run, drink a jar of Nutella or like, you know, the, the, the um, cream cheese frosting, that sweet cream cheese. I, I could eat that by the pint. Oh my God, <laughs> it was so good. And I was one of those people that if you said, Nick, no more sweets, I'd be like, are you kidding? Like, there's no way. I, I, I can't live without my walnut dreams from Rose's Bakery. I'll eat them by the crate. Like, I'd rather die than go without these things. Uh, I think that's a lot of people's reactions. And what I found over time was that my tastes recalibrated. And I didn't even want, one, I didn't want sweets um, at, at all. And two, if I did have something sweet, I could enjoy it, but I enjoyed it to a much greater degree. So like now when I eat a blueberry, or like a a few blueberries, it tastes genuinely to me like ice cream used to, which sounds hyperbolic, but actually it's, it's really weird to which your taste can recalibrate. I'll give you one anecdote that I think is kind of funny. Um, this was about a year and a half after I started a ketogenic diet and, um, I was in the kitchen with my, my mom and my brother and I, I picked up a little bit of uh, egg yolk that I just dropped. I was eating a hard boiled egg and I popped it in my mouth and I almost gagged because it was so freaking sweet. It turns out it wasn't an egg yolk because what had happened was the night before um, my family had gotten an ice cream cake to celebrate something and that cream cheese frosting that I said I'd love, the yellow bit had fallen off. I mistook it for an egg yolk and I had it. And in that moment, I thought, wow, this is a food I used to love because it was so freaking sweet and delicious. And now I actually can't tolerate that. And you know, for me, Wankate wasn't per se an issue. What I find for people that I work with that have like, you know, a, a problem with weight or something, they, they find it like so surprising when they get to that point when they're like, I didn't even realize that being liberated of these cravings was an option in life. I thought I would have to give up something and didn't realize that there was an option to not be shackled by 
these cravings for like hyper palatable ultra processed food, and that I could really enjoy a very simple diet. Um, more so than I, I ever enjoyed food before, which is a weird thing. I, I realize it's like a, a cognitive dissonance, a, a, a leap that most people listening might not be able to make. But I do find that one of the most surprising, quirky, and maybe powerful things about um, cutting out sweets, whether or not you're ketogenic or whether or not you're even low carb, with cutting out these processed foods is you, you, your body recalibrates quite interesting. Yeah. It, I completely thanks, agree. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I, I had shared those same sentiments. She, she had convinced me during like middle of quarantine to get off sugar. And honestly, for the first week I was having these really intensive, like nightmares where everything was about me going to achieve sugar. Yeah. It was true, true withdrawal. And I, I used to love like peach rings and things like that. And now I could never eat those, but you have a peach, you have a blueberry and it tastes yeah. phenomenal. And relating it to med school, since I know that's all, all where we are, it's really interesting. The culture I find around food in medicine, it's like, uh, as soon as I hit med school, I'm like, this is a lot of sitting. And they're like, yeah, we're like making you do a lot of sitting in lectures, but here's some donuts and ice cream to offset it. I'm like, ah, yeah. free like, pizza. I'm, yeah. There's so many ice cream and pizza parties. And I'm like, aren't we supposed to be like setting an example. We just had this whole lecture about like professionalism and setting an example of this, that, and the other. And now you're making us be sedentary, stressing us out and feeding us junk food. I had a, I had a talk with a, a council the other day. It's like, we want to make sure you take care of yourself. We push you hard, but you know, not so hard that you can't take care of yourself. You know, you should get a good sleep and stuff. I'm like, don't we have 24 plus hour shifts? It's like, well, yeah, you do. I'm like, so, so you're saying like, I should take care of myself and get good sleep. And, the, the food that, first of all, they serve in the hospital to their patients who are supposed oh. to be healing. Oh, yes. And then the hospital food also for the physicians and then the residents. Like every time you come in and it's been like a long night or people are like, oh, I'm so tired and like internal medicine. It's always like what you were saying, donuts. Everything's like sugary, all of these like snack foods. Nobody has time to have like a meal. So it's all of yeah. these like little like sugary snack foods. A hundred percent. Like you go past the cafe, literally the one thing that I can find, I think at MGH, um, which is where I'm posted now is like, you can get hard boiled eggs at the one like coffee shop amidst all the pastries and stuff. Like you can buy hard boiled eggs. I'm like, okay, that's something, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's a bizarre culture. And and, and like you said, what they feed patients is unreal. I'll be there with like, you know, next to a, a patient with diabetes and the breakfast will be like blueberry pancakes, orange juice, applesauce. Um, and just like, and, and a muffin, just pure sugar. I was with a patient. I, well, I'll, I'll be as vague as possible for obvious reasons, but, um, I, I, I was speaking with her and, um, and, and she was pre-diabetic. Well, HbA1c was 6.4 and it had been above 6.5 before, but, um, I was doing an interview and no one had really talked to her seriously about her diet. So I was kind of probing what she ate. There was no protein. So no fish and fish, no chicken, no meat, no eggs, no tofu, like no cottage cheese, no Greek yogurt, like not an ounce of protein. Occasionally she would have kidney beans occasionally, like maybe once or twice a week. And then for breakfast, it was like sugary cereal or toast and jam with orange juice, or maybe like instant oatmeal. Right. And then I go to talk to the, the physician about it, the treating physician. And I, I'm there in the room with him. And, and she's like, oh, schools me, you know, but her HbA1c is 6.4. So she doesn't actually have diabetes. So, you know, we'll cross the bridge if she has diabetes. 
And then they talk about her hypertensive medication. And I'm just yeah. like, okay. I think it's a matter of that algorithmic thinking. It was, she hasn't hit the cut point. Yeah. Like that's an arbitrary cut point. Like you want to look at like HbA1c's incrementally as markers of subclinical atherosclerosis. Like there is no magic cutoff at 6.5. Yeah. Like it's, it's just like, it's, it's an arbitrary pass fail that we create. And insulin resistance starts like years and years and years in previously before you get the diagnosis. of. Why don't we treat fasting insulin? I find it astonishing. So like, just to build on that point, like when you think about insulin resistance, which is the basis of far more than just diabetes, we can talk about insulin resistance a little bit because it's particularly fascinating topic to me, but like, you're right. So you, you become insulin resistant. What is the result? Well, your body puts out more insulin because you're insulin resistant. So you need a, more insulin to get the signal. So your pancreas pumps out more. And so then you become hyperinsulinemic and your insulin keeps on going up and up and up as your body becomes more insulin resistant and you pump out more insulin until a point where your beta cells start to fail. Then you have this rapid drop in beta cell function. Um, at the time, then you're insulin resistant. So only then at the end of the pathology, if you were to graph these things out, it's like you have this big increase in insulin, then a drop. Only then at the drop point, do you really have a spike in the HbA1c? So when your HbA1c is going up at that point, you're already deep into the pathology and, you know, hyperinsulinemia in and of itself, independent of just like diabetes, insulin resistance is extremely problematic for a lot of conditions. I had one person that I knew, uh, not diabetic, um, but insulin resistance or insulin was running at 70 which is nuts. She had PCOS. We can go into the, the pathology of that, but it's polycystic ovarian syndrome, a common cause of infertility. And she really wanted to have kids. Um, doctor said, you're, you're probably never going to have children. It's not possible. She goes low carb. Her insulin comes down. Her insulin resistance improves. She has twins spontaneously. Oh my gosh. She's <laughs> just like, but I mean, that's just an isolated anecdote, but, um, but it's, yeah. it's, 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 the thing is, is, is reflective of you know, the power of uh, metabolic interventions for a whole host of things. Um, yeah. When you start to think about the pathologies and, and PCOS is just one example, you have too much insulin, which is causing cysts in the ovaries because you're altering sex steroid synthesis, you decrease the insulin and kaboom. Yeah. Because you have twins. Yeah. And, and for some of our listeners who don't really know what insulin is, like when you eat or drink something that's sugary or you have like glucose in your system, your pancreas, yeah. Um, it releases insulin from your beta cells, which Nick had mentioned, mm. and um, it's supposed to bring glucose into the cells so that sugar into the cells. So you have energy. And then when you become is- insulin resistant, it's because you've had so much glucose and so much insulin that your cells stop responding. And then the pancreas keeps putting out more and more and more insulin to get the glucose out of your bloodstream into the cells. But the cells keep saying no, no, no. And then the beta cells get so tired of producing insulin that they like just kind of stop. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and I'll build on that point just to, to, to clarify, you know, insulin is insulin's a good hormone. Um, yeah. It has a lot of really important growth functions, including like in the brain for your brain function. And so when you become resistant to insulin, that comes with a lot of problems. Um, not just that you can't take up, you know, blood sugar, but your organs start becoming dysfunctional. Um, and it becomes more complicated because although we're saying insulin resistance, the picture is not all the cells in your body become insulin resistant. So if you just have more insulin, you can fix it. Uh, and PCOS is an example, like that's a condition where the cell group actually doesn't become insulin resistant. So in the compensation, 
as the insulin rise, then you get over signaling and that causes the pathology. Um, so it becomes quite complicated, um, with consequences all over the body, in particular in the brain. I'm sure you've heard like, uh, Alzheimer's disease referred to as type three diabetes. One of the reasons being one of the key pathologies in Alzheimer's is insulin resistance, which can occur in the brain, even independent of the rest of the body. Um, interesting. So. What's the mechanism for that? Like what, what, what specifically in the brain? Oh, um, insulin has a lot of functions in the brain with, uh, trafficking at, uh, neurotransmitters at, at junctions in terms of uh, they functioning in, uh, axonal growth and regeneration of, uh, neural and glial circuitries, um, and, and regulating cerebral glucose metabolism. Um, so your brain does need some glucose. It can run on ketones, but it always needs some glucose. And so one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease is, uh, glucose metabolism in the brain will go down. Um, and this is long before the symptomatic stage. Um, and that is, is a good, you know, uh, harbinger of Alzheimer's disease. There's also a lot of other pathologies, um, that I won't go down the rabbit hole with, with like dysfunctions in M mTOR, AKT, GSK3 beta, which funny story, uh, not funny story for you and the three of us nerds, medical nerds, um, <laughs> you've, you've probably heard of glycogen synthase, um, kinase, which regulates glycogen synthesis in muscle tissues. Um, GSK3 beta in the brain that actually goes by another name, which is, um, you know, you think about the, the standard amyloid cascade hypothesis and Alzheimer's, you get amyloid in the brain, and then that somehow leads to tau pathologies, which strangle neurons and kill them. Well, one of the things that is mediating, um, or thought to mediate the cascade is tau kinase one, the thing that phosphorylates tau to make, give you, um, phospho tau tangles. Tau kinase one is another name for GSK3 beta. Um, mm. so that wraps into insulin pathologies. All these things are so like overlapping. Um, I can send you a, a paper I wrote on, on the topic if you want. Oh, cool. Yeah. Wait, what was your PhD in? I mean, probably metabolic stuff, but yeah. like specifically what? Specifically. Well, um, I, I typically say it was in neurometabolism and ketogenics. Um, the original trials I was running was, um, clinical trials in patients with Parkinson's disease with mm -hmm. some side, uh, focus on Alzheimer's disease. So neurodegenerative diseases, it became a little bit more complicated by the, the pandemic because I was midway through my last trial, which is my biggest when it's like pandemic hits. And you can imagine what happens to a student's trial in vulnerable Parkinson's patients. Like it's the first thing to get shut down, especially in the NHS. So then I had to shift focus a little bit and I've been doing a hodgepodge of things. So my thesis was ended up being like a kind of a Frankenstein project, but I got it done. And since then, I've been really focusing on uh, generally metabolic health, endocrinology, and especially lipidology, which is where my, one of my main focuses is now, really studying lipids and um, lipoprotein dynamics, which is, which is super fun. So do you want to be an endocrinologist or do you have any idea what, yeah, what where, specialty where you... you want to do? Uh, I could see myself doing an internal medicine residency followed by an endocrinology fellowship. I, I really do want to focus on metabolic health. Now, that's not a fellowship at this time. But um, yeah, I think endocrinology or neuroendocrine could be a really fun um, fellowship. And then I, I kind of imagine myself having a private practice of sorts, but with an academic appointment so I can do research and teach. I really enjoy teaching. So artificial sweeteners, some people think they're good. Some people replace sugar with artificial sweeteners. What are your current thoughts about artificial sweeteners? 
I think I'm, I'm going to change the term artificial sweeteners to non-nutritive sweeteners to be inclusive of things like stevia and allulose. So like basically sweeteners that replace sugar that don't have calories. Okay. So let's list off the common ones first. So just yeah, when the, people are listening, they can hear. Um, aspartame is very common and sucralose. Aspartame is the, the sweetener in Diet Coke. Um, you got like the sucralose is, um, I, is that sucralose is Splenda? I'm not sure. But you can look on the label of things. There's, there's a ton of them. And I could give you like a list and a, a blog. I think it makes more sense to highlight the ones that might be safer. Um, but I mean, a really common, maybe I would consider not safe ones are like saccharin, aspartame, sucralose. Um, and what do I mean by unsafe? Well, there's a lot of things that they do. But <laughs> well, here, here's a good example. I'm going to reference a study. It was by Aaron Segal's group. They're an Israeli group. It was published, I think, it was in Nature or Cell, a top journal. Um, and it, it basically showed that artificial sweeteners, it was sucralose, saccharin, and aspartame, if I'm correct, um, with most of the focus being on uh, saccharin, although I think, you know, it was generalizable to the three, was um, they were able to show that these sweeteners caused um, glucose intolerance in rodents so that when you gave them actually a glucose challenge, they had a much bigger blood sugar spike, which is indicative of metabolic dysfunction of a sort. Um, and what they were interestingly able to show was that if you transplanted microbiomes from these mice to mice without microbiomes, naive mice, and they were able to transplant the phenotype. So those mice then became um, glucose intolerant. But then what they did was they did a trial in humans where they took people who didn't have um, artificial sweeteners in their diet and they gave them, I think it was saccharin, although I think the effects would be same with sucralose and, and um, Splenda. They gave them um, or sucralose and aspartame, artificial sweeteners for a week. And within a week, I think it was like after four days, they were becoming quite glucose intolerant, these human beings. And then they were able to transplant the human beings microbiomes to mice. And again, transplant the phenotype. So basically this was just one study showing these are messing up the microbiome in some way. They're fiddling with the microbiome in some way. And then there's, you know, correlational studies showing that things like aspartame are associated with cognitive um, abnormalities and, and mental health illnesses with biological plausibility studies in rodents showing that, you know, some of the, the metabolic byproducts of these components when they're broken down um, like aspartame can alter the degree to which certain precursors to neurotransmitters are transported into the brain. So there's a lot of biological plausibility for effects beyond the microbiome, including in the brain. But I think a lot of it, uh, of the downside is just the habitual, like the, the perception that we need this crutch, I guess without getting into to the nitty gritty too much about, about uh, of the metabolism. I would say that we were talking earlier about the degree to which cutting out sweets really does recalibrate things. Um, and that people can live just enjoying foods in natural sweetness without the need for the hyper palatable dose that comes with a diet Coke, um, this, that, and the other, and these sweeteners, what they do is that they kind of reinforce that mentality of I need the sweets. And in truth, they stimulate appetite. I mean, 
if you want to do a self-experiment, cut out sweets, everything sweet for a while. See what happens to your appetite and your enjoyment of food. I'm sure your appetite will go down. Your enjoyment of food will go up. Then add in just sweeteners. Add in some diet sodas. See what happens to your appetite. I guarantee it'll go through the roof. So um, do I think that they have no place? Absolutely not. I think that like if you have to, if, if you're, say, struggling with obesity or, or diabetes, you're much better off having even a diet Coke than a Mountain Dew or a regular Coke if you're insulin resistant. Like if you have to trade between those things, but I think it's a, 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 a misperception that you need to trade. Um, that said, I won't be all doom and gloom. I would say I do sometimes when working with people recommend particular artificial sweeteners. Um, and those include allulose, particularly the brand RX sugar, stevia, um, erythritol, monk fruit. Those are four that I have had difficulty finding any literature suggesting that they adversely affect the microbiome, that they spike insulin, that they adversely affect cognitive function. So for people who, you know, want to experiment with cutting out sweets and want to crutch, I actually think these are reasonable options. And for other people as well, like, um, I know the RX brand, the, the, the allulose syrup is used by like little kids with type one diabetes and, you know, like somebody who obviously just doesn't produce insulin to see a little kid, like having a ketogenic low carb diet, the kid with diabetes, and then having like an allulose maple syrup to put on whatever they're eating and saying like, this makes life a little bit more pleasurable. I'm not going to bash that. So I absolutely think they have their place. I just think for the, the majority it's worth a trial going without them because they're absolutely not necessary. Whether or not they're harmful is another question. And I think one could make the argument that the standard artificial sweeteners, the Diet Cokes XYZ, probably are harmful. Um, and the degree to which our microbiome dictates like our appetites and our uh, really everything about us is quite remarkable. Some other work by that Seagal group I mentioned, I think it was Seagal group, um, includes work on the microbiome and the degree to which variations in the microbiome with things not like artificial sweeteners, but with meal timing can have dramatic effects on our metabolism. There was this one study, I think it was Thias at all, T-H-A-I-S-S 2014. I call it the jet lag study because what they were able to show in the study was by um, basically inducing jet lag in mice, they could um, cause the mice to gain weight by shifting the degree to which their eating windows were overlapped with their sleeping windows, independent of their caloric intake. And then what they did, and this is why I call the jet lag study, they actually took microbiome samples for people before they went on an ARR flight. So they took the microbiome samples from humans before the flight, when they were jet lagged after the flight, and then after they had recovered from jet lag, and when they, were, they transplanted the um, jet lag microbiomes into the mice, independent of caloric intake, those mice became obese, um, which is pretty interesting and is consistent with what we know about um, disrupted sleep, at least, you know, in, in cohort studies with people that like, you know, the frequent flyers or do night shifts tend to have more metabolic abnormalities. Um, so it, it kind of makes sense when you think about it too, because you have your body's clocks, you kind of have two major clocks, right? You have your clock in your head, awesome. which gets input from light, you know, different inputs into your body, these zeitgebers um, will entrain kind of set your clocks and the main ones in the head, which gets input from light. But the other main one is in the gut and it doesn't get input from light because it's your bacterial clocks and they're not per se directly communicating with your brain. And so if you imagine that these are like two different sides of an orchestra, you need to have them synced up 
for your metabolism to be running in harmony. And if you mistime meals with respect to when you're sleeping and living, then you can get metabolic dysfunction. It just makes intuitive sense. So there's other studies that, that kind of hammer home that point. But uh, among my tips for people, just general tips for health and wellness is don't eat late at night. Not only are you prone to make poor food decisions, but like all things being equal, all calories being equal, eating late at night is probably not good for you. Anyway, mm-hmm. I think that so many interesting things going on. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it can kind of disrupt your sleep, which then if you have disrupted sleep the next day, even yep. one bad night of sleep, you become a little bit more insulin resistant, which I think is wild. <laughs> and hungrier. Yes. Growing goes up. And so, yeah, it just precipitates a negative feedback or positive feedback cycle, bad positive feedback cycle um, yeah. of dysfunction. But yeah, that's where most of us live. And to take a few steps back, yeah. Um, what is a ketogenic diet? Like, what does your uh, day of eating look like? <laughs> uh, I can describe my day of eating in a moment, but what I'd first say is that um, a, a ketogenic diet, I like to say, well, ketogenic is not a diet. It's a metabolic state. Because when I say ketogenic diet, people get the picture in their mind of like uh, lots of butter and bacon and eggs and cheese, which can be in red meat. Um because some people choose to make it like that, but really it's a metabolic state that is complementary with whatever other diet you want to do. So the defining feature of a ketogenic diet is you eat, you limit your carbs to the point that your body's turning body fat into ketone bodies. And we can talk about that function of ketone bodies in a moment, but when you have ketone bodies in the blood due to your body making them, that is a ketogenic diet. Now you can do that eating a purely carnivore diet, or you can do that eating a vegetarian or even vegan diet. You can eat a Mediterranean diet. You can really spice it any way you want. And so I just want to make that point first because, you know, if people are put off by the idea of red meat and dairy for whatever reason, it's like your keto diet and mine has looked like this before can be like salmon and avocado and olive oil and leafy greens. That can very be keto, very much be keto. Um, but to give a more concrete definition, a ketogenic diet is a high fat, um, low carbohydrate, generally less than like 25 net grams a day, um, and moderate protein diet that is putting your body into a fat burning mode. So you're using mostly fatty acids as fuel. And some of those fatty acids will get converted, um, by the liver into these molecules called ketone bodies, which do a few things. Um, one of the things they do is fuel the brain. So when you have, you know, low glucose in your diet, your body generates ketone bodies to fuel the brain. Another point I do want to make about ketone bodies, because I sense we're going to be going there with this discussion, is that they kind of have dual natures. They are really great fuel sources. You can consider them the fourth macronutrient if you want, in addition to like proteins, fats, and carbs. They're another fuel source, but they're also extremely potent signaling molecules. They're like hormones. They bind to receptors on cell surfaces. They go into cells and change gene expression. They post-translationally modify about 1,400 different proteins in cells to really overhaul metabolism. Um, So I think their more powerful function is not as fuels, not as clean fuels, but as signaling molecules in their own right, like any other hormone in your body, testosterone, insulin, what have you. Um, so they really do have a shift on metabolism, which I find very interesting. And I think that's kind of where the, the forefront of the research in ketogenic diets is for. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is ketogenic diets 
they're on the spectrum of what I like to call therapeutic carbohydrate reduction, which is reducing carbohydrates to an appropriate level for a particular condition. And there are a lot of conditions that benefit from therapeutic carbohydrate reduction, like TCR, diabetes, obesity, XYZ. Some benefit additionally from having ketones on board. Something like epilepsy is a well-known use case for ketogenic diets. Uh, also Alzheimer's disease is becoming, well, it's not as well-known as epilepsy, but it, there's a lot of conditions that will benefit from ketosis, but not all conditions need ketosis. So when people say like, I'm going keto for weight loss, like you do not need to be all in and all out or always keto or always not. There's a lot of gradations and ways to do it depending on what you're using it for. So, um, yeah, I'll put a pin in it there and, uh, I, I could talk about different formulations for ketogenic diet forever and different anyway. So yeah, we can return to that if you want, but I really like how, when, in your definition, you said that you can splice it and dice it however you want with any kind of like, hmm? especially for me when I, I'm, I've been very focused on nutrition and I've been reading a lot about it, but I think that what bothers me a little bit about the research is how much we focused on the Mediterranean diet, which is very like specific to a geographical region where like people have very different, like cultural backgrounds and what they've been eating. And you can definitely have the benefit of nutrition with following like a diet that you're used to, or that your family makes. And you can sit around the table and actually have meals with people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mediterranean diets always been, or recently been hot stuff. And I think I think there's some confusion around it um, with respect to like a a differentiation between the Mediterranean lifestyle and and what a really a Mediterranean diet is. So there's lots of level of confusion, but like there's more that goes into living a long, healthy life in Sardinia than just what you eat. There's also misperceptions about what they eat, but it's just like the way they live life. You know, just having some olive oil is not going to give you all the benefits of that lifestyle. Also, I mean, I think there's misperceptions, correct me if I'm wrong, because you may know more about this, but about, you know, what a traditional Mediterranean diet really looks like in different regions, because my impression is they're not really like scared of things like saturated fat and cheeses or pork. I think those things get eaten quite a lot. I don't think like a giant pizza is often eaten. Um, I don't know. I, I think that what people perceive as a Mediterranean diet isn't always Mediterranean. In fact, salmon, the canonical healthy fatty fish, which I feel like is on the cover of every Mediterranean diet cookbook, including my own, we can talk about that in a minute, is not actually found anywhere that in the Mediterranean Mediterranean Sea. So it's technically not Mediterranean. It's just become a catch term and a useful media marketing point to be completely transparent. I might've shared before just now that I actually have a cookbook Um, and it's the new Mediterranean diet cookbook, like subtitle like a keto friendly, blah, 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 blah. And the reason we went with the Mediterranean theme, first of all, I actually do love fish. Like I've always loved seafood. So it was easy for me, but it was like, that was a deal we could get with the publishers because that's what sells. And it would sell to have a big title that says the new Mediterranean diet cookbook, a keto friendly, blah, 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 blah. Um, (laughs) Rather than having just a keto cookbook. Because that's what people perceive as healthy. So what we try to do with that one is, is, is I said that they were perpendicular or complementary. It's like, look, you want to cut your carbs. You want to like eat a Mediterranean diet. Look, you can have delicious, healthy food that does both things. Um, but that experience was very much for me. Like, yeah, this is, this is what people think of as healthy. And I, you know, kind of have to play the game to change the game. 
sort of deal. So I have nothing against the Mediterranean diet by any means, but I do think it's misunderstood. Um, and why did you decide to go to Europe to get your PhD? Uh, I'm an opportunist. And quite honestly, it was a matter of like, I read a paper. It was really cool. I emailed the prof said, if I get scholarship money, can I come work in your lab? And then I ended up just applying to med school and UK fellowship at the same time and um, ended up getting both. So I deferred med school. I had some money to go to Oxford and, and why not go to the land of Harry Potter to have a kind of academic vacation. It was so much fun. And so how's it been for you transitioning back and, and starting medical school? I'm always excited for the next thing. Always ready for like a little bit of change. So, I mean, I'm sure you remember like the transition is, it's, it's a transition. And at first you're a little anxious, you're getting adjusted to new things, but it's like, okay, I did this thing, I'm ready for the next thing. I'm just, you know, excited at each stage. And, and, and at this stage, I think that the highlight for me has really been meeting the professors and meeting my peers, the physicians of the future, you guys, basically. Like at Oxford, it was nice, but I was kind of siloed in academia um, in terms of like basic research. Um, now it's like, now we're on this journey together to become the, the physicians of the future. And I can actually have this background in research and this mindset that kind of informs that. And then also learn from all my peers, from all their complementary experiences. And it, that's just been really fun to hearing, you know, what people have done and what their passions are. You can tell what well, my passion is about metabolic health and people are willing to listen, but in reciprocation, I'm really like excited to listen about, you know, what, what is their hang up? What is their thing? I, I heard recently that butyrate can be protective of gut lining. So why do you think that the keto diet helps your like ulcerative colitis? There's a lot of speculation around that. So um, just to clarify quickly for listeners who might not know, butyrate, it's what's known as a short chain fatty acid. So generally you make short chain fatty acids from fiber. So that's one of the reasons people say fiber is good for your gut because your gut bacteria can turn them into these short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, et cetera. And these, similar to ketone bodies, are a few things. One, both are signaling molecules binding to receptors in the gut. And two, both are a fuel for your gut lining cells. So the colonocytes in your gut, they do need fuel. And um, butyrate, isobutyrate, um, beta-hydroxybutyrate can all be fuels for gut lining. Um, so there are a lot of reasons the ketogenic diet could benefit the gut. One reason is because actually ketone bodies are essential in renewing the um, uh, stem, cell, stem cells in your gut. And so it can help renew the endothelial lining. Um, and with the, if you have people who have inflammatory bowel disease, they might even have trouble producing or absorbing butyrate. And so you have this alternate fuel source, this alternate signaling molecule that may create some benefit. There's actually a, a paper out about that, not specifically in ulcerative colitis, but about that mechanism. Um, other things that a ketogenic diet could do is alter bile acid uh, metabolism of the gut. Bile acids are the things that help us digest fats, but they're also potent signaling molecules, not just in the gut, but actually in the brain, which is the point I wanna emphasize because I just had a lecture that said, bile acids should not be found in the blood. And that is absolutely not true. They're very important. Um, sorry, I'm sidebarring now. There's a, a, a TGR5 receptor in the brain for bile acids that will literally, at least in rodents, like alter um, energy expenditure, food intake, insulin resistance, again, all independent of caloric intake. And it's like, well, what now? We thought these were just like helping us digest fat. Now they're in the brain changing like my insulin sensitivity and my whole body. This is nuts. That's why I love metabolic so cool. health. It's just so cool. But um, 
going back to the gut, keto um, or, or beta-hydroxybutyrate and butyrate, some of the things that, do, that they, they do are they're very anti-inflammatory. So if you have an inflammatory bowel disease, well, put two and two together. Um, do I know all the mechanisms by which it helps my gut? No, actually, I have no clue. I'd really love to understand better. The fact of the matter is I'm pretty convinced it's working in me. And now taking off my scientist hat, putting on my patient hat, that's really all that matters, that it works. And that is inspiration enough for me to want to research the topic or read about other people doing research on the topic. But when it comes to the life of the patient, it's like, you know, it works. And at this point, I can care less why day in and day out. So. So lastly, we ask every guest to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Future is blank. All right. Forgive me for being punchy and playing on alliteration, but I'm going to say the future is fat. And I don't mean people like an increasing. Okay. That, that's, that was, that was a poorly chosen word because it's ambiguous, <laughs> but I'm going to go with it anyway. Um, the future is fat, not because the obesity rate is probably going to top 50% at some point. It's 42.4, I think right now, but because of the pattern I see in metabolic health with the adoption of uh, carbohydrate restriction um, and high fat diets, which I think are thought of as, as fad now, but here's a pattern I see, which I find quite interesting. While they might not be mainstream right now, I know so many physicians who have over time converted from a conventional approach to a uh, therapeutic carbohydrate restriction ketogenic approach, or at least incorporating that as an option for their patients and thinking this is reasonable. And I know no one, at least met no one retro converting. A lot of people have gone from my plate to keto, but nobody that I know has gone back to like, oh yeah, my plate makes sense because actually it doesn't. If you actually read the research behind like these guidelines, it's it, to me, it's kind of absurd. And I, I have read the research and it's, it's kind of weak. So um, I'd say the future is fat just because I do see that trend towards metabolic health. And I, I don't mean to conflict those two is exactly similar, but I, it's, it's, it's the sphere of metabolic health in which I'm personally most fascinated. And right now, which is the most controversial not really controversial to say exercise is important and we could have a whole other talk about exercise because that's a critical piece of metabolic health. So we only touched the tip of the iceberg, but um, I'm super optimistic for the future because I do see a trend towards open-mindedness towards metabolic health. And I actually don't think that there's flexibility to do anything else. And what I mean by that is people are going to do it anyway. Patients are going to do it anyway. And it's going to kind of be pushed from the bottom up. But I think it will be very like grassrootsy with patients coming to their doctors or doctors themselves experimenting and finding, oh, this works. So doctors translating from one patient group to another or seeing success of one patient. And I hear about this all the time. Like the doctor's like, don't do this. And the patient does it. It's like, wow, it worked. Let me try it in another patient. Oh, wow, it worked. Let me try it in another patient. It keeps working. Um, so Yeah. I think this is going to become more mainstream. And that's why I'd say for me, the future could be fat. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. 
We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.